The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Luke. Glory Glory to to you, Lord Christ. Christ. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be great earthquakes, and in various places famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars, And on the earth, distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. But watch yourselves. Lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to you, Lord Christ. morning, everyone. Thank you for being here with us this morning in worship. Let me pray for us. Father, I do pray for the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts that it would be pleasing and acceptable to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we've said, today's the first Sunday in the season of Advent, and I wonder what that means to you, what each and every one of you think that that means and expect of Advent during this season. As Josh said earlier, Advent as a word, it means coming. And probably most of you associate it with Christmas, and you work backwards in your thinking from Christmas to Advent, which isn't entirely mistaken, but that could be a problem. It's not entirely mistaken because Christmas is about Jesus's first coming into this world, and Advent is about his second coming. So there's a connection, but the problem is that his first and second comings aren't very much alike at all. At Christmas, what do we read about? What are the images, the ideas we're presented with? There's a star in the sky, and wise men follow it, and they they find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger, as we read elsewhere in the Gospel of Luke. But at Advent, there's no star in the sky. In fact, all the stars in the sky are falling. Maybe you notice some of the language there. There's no baby lying safe and serene in a manger because the entire world is shaking. That's what the language is about that Josh just read for you. Distress of the nations, perplexity, roaring of the sea, people fainting. They're fainting with fear and foreboding. So it's not exactly a time to sing away in the manger. So what of our Advent hymns? There's actually not very many Advent hymns at all. The church has just not written that many. There is this song called The Man Comes Around by Johnny Cash. It could be an Advent hymn for us. It says there's a man going around taking names. And he decides who to free and who to blame. 
Everybody won't be treated all the same. There'll be a golden ladder reaching down when the man comes around. The hairs on your arm will stand up at the terror in each sip and in each sup. Will you partake of that last offered cup or disappear into the potter's ground when the man comes around? That could be our Advent hymn. It's Advent, so are you ready for it? Three points this morning about Advent. Advent as time, Advent as experience, and Advent as opportunity. First of all, Advent as time. I'm about to say something that most of you probably never, ever imagined you would ever hear at All Saints. So are you ready? C.S. Lewis was wrong. There, I've said it. It's now recorded for posterity, but he was. He was wrong about this passage. Like many modern biblical commentators and scholars, Lewis assumed that Jesus was talking exclusively in this passage about the end of the world. So when he says in verse 32, truly, truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. They thought it's the end of the world. And so Jesus was wrong because it didn't take place in that generation. And so they thought Jesus was just inescapably a part of his time. He was caught up in the heightened sense of the apocalyptic. And just like all the prophets and teachers, then he was wrong about this time. And he, reality though, is he wasn't wrong. Lewis was wrong. The commentators were wrong. They're just not reading the passage as closely as they should. Because you see the words, these things, the very end of the passage in verse 36, you see those words? Well, they're also at the very beginning of the passage in verse six and in verse seven. And Notice what it is that Jesus is talking about in verse six. He's talking about the temple in Jerusalem. He's talking about the destruction of the temple because the disciples walk into Jerusalem. They're marveling at the beauty and the grandeur, the majesty of the temple. And Jesus says to them, not one stone will remain upon the other. They will all be torn down. Every stone will be completely destroyed. And they were in that generation In just 37 years after Jesus spoke these words in 70 AD, the Roman general Titus marched into Jerusalem and destroyed the temple, burned it to the ground and massacred thousands and thousands of people in the process. So when Jesus says in verse 36, stay awake and pray that you might have the strength to escape these things that are gonna take place, that's what he's talking about. A city destroyed, thousands massacred. But here's the connection for us and the importance for us. And that is that the way that Luke uses the destruction of Jerusalem and the way that Jesus thinks about it is as a foreshadowing of the final end of his second coming and the end of the world. In other words, disciples lived in an apocalyptic time, in a time of anticipation for this coming cataclysmic occurrence that would change everything. It would literally turn their world and their lives as they knew it upside down. It would be a time of intense, opposition even. So he tells them, you will be taken to prison, verse 12. You'll be taken before governors. You'll be taken before kings. Jesus is preparing them for this apocalyptic in-between time. And that's Advent. Advent insists to us year after year, each and every year as we observe it, that it's not just the Christians then. It's not just the first disciples. It's us too, that we occupy the same position as they did then. They lived in between the time of his resurrection and the destruction of Jerusalem. We live in between the time of his resurrection and the end of the world. And what did he tell them to expect? What are you expecting in your in-between time? Verse 12 again, he told them to expect opposition. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you for my name's sake. So think about those words. 
Think about them for your sake. They will lay their hands on you for my name's sake. Do you believe that? Is that a part of your expectation? In other words, how is the world laying their hands upon you right now? Is there anything that you're resisting? Is there anything you're opposed for? Is there anything you're disliked for, rejected for, ridiculed for, especially because you're a Christian? Is there anything? Because Advent insists that there should be, there will be something. Here's something. Our sexual ethics. In a recent article entitled Sexual Counter-Revolution, Scott Yanor, who is a professor of political science at Boise State University, he used a term that caught my attention. The term is sexual constitution. And this is what he says. He says, every society has a sexual constitution. With the tools of honor and shame, the sexual constitution shapes desires, guiding it towards certain experiences and expressions and away from others. It teaches citizens what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. It determines the rank of marriage, sex, and child rearing among the goods that people pursue in this life. So do you hear what he's saying? He's saying there's a sexual constitution. There are unwritten laws, unwritten rights, freedoms that every particular people who are trying to live together have. They're not explicit, but they're assumed and understood. We all have a sexual constitution. The problem for us now is that the historic biblical Christian sexual constitution is very different from our society's sexual constitution. They're no longer the same. He begins this article with a story from Tacoma, Washington, where Planned Parenthood recently distributed flyers at a middle school targeting 11-year-olds that told the 11-year-olds that they could have sex with anyone 13 years old and younger, and that they didn't have to talk to their parents about it. In fact, they could get birth control as well, and they didn't have to talk to their parents about it because it wasn't their parents' decision, it was their decision. So what if you were there? What if you were to speak out against that? There in Tacoma, at that middle school, what would happen to you? How would you be thought of? How would you be labeled? How would you be spoken of if you spoke out against it? Or what would happen to you if you asked why in a recent survey conducted by the Center for Human Technology about the happiness of various app users, that the users of Grindr, which is the gay dating app, that they were found to be the least happy of all app users? What if you were just to ask why? What if you were to ask why the suicide rates for gay people is still three to seven times higher than that of straight people? Even now, after our, our society's sexual constitution has changed and homosexuality is publicly embraced and celebrated, why is it still so high? Why are those folks still suffering so dramatically on an emotional level that their suicide rates are that high? What if you were to ask, maybe it's because, along with the scriptures, that the Lord didn't create us to have a sexuality that expressed itself that way? What if you were even to suggest that? What if you were to suggest and to, and to say, maybe it's because expressing your sexuality that way is like running your soul against the grain of the universe. What would happen? What would happen to you at your work or at your school or among your friends or among your neighbors or among your family? Verse 12 would happen. They will lay their hands upon you. So are you ready for that? because we live in a very similar time to that of the first disciples. It's an in-between time. Advent will not let us forget that. Year after year, it puts it right before us. So Advent is time, but also secondly, Advent as experience. If Advent is an in-between time, as I said, a time not of ease and fulfillment, but a time of waiting 
in anticipation of waiting for rescue and in, in anticipation of rest that is to come. It's not a time of triumphant victory, but a time of bearing certain crosses. If, if that's what the time is outside of us, then what's the experience of that time like inside of us, internally, personally, spiritually? What's it like for us to live in this time? Well, the experience, I think, will be very much like our epistle reading from Romans chapter 13, which this is the spiritual experience. So look here at uh, page eight here, Romans chapter 13, which also speaks about time, but it describes it very strangely. It describes it in contradictory terms. It says that it's still night, but it also says that the day is far gone. It's not yet day, though the day is at hand. And night is, of course, an image of, of sin and darkness and all that's broken and wrong with the world. The day, the light is an image of the life and presence of God at work within us, around us, his presence, his work in this world. So according to Romans 13, what is our experience? Which is it for us? Is it day or is it night for us? And you know how I like to answer questions like that? The answer is yes. There it goes. Somebody got it. Exactly. Yes. Because listen to Paul, salvation is nearer than when we first believed, but it's not yet fully here. And so the works of darkness still assail us. And it gives a list. It's a list that's about the church. It's a list about what it's like to be a Christian. Drunkenness, sexual immorality, quarreling, jealousy. In other words, that should feel familiar to you, that level of struggle, that level of contradiction, that level of difficulty. That is the Christian experience, not just in Advent, but through Advent, seeing all of our life as this. In an Advent sermon preached now 35 years ago, Fleming Rutledge, she bravely used a Martin Luther King Jr. illustration as an example of what it's like to live this Romans 13 dynamic. She had read a, a recently released, very controversial, poorly received biography on Martin Luther King. It's written by David Garrow. And this is what she said. She said, Martin Luther King contended with two different types of works of darkness. There were the external evils of segregation, racial hatred, sheriffs, police, dogs, jail sentences. But there was also the inner torment of his obsessive sexual ad adventuring, which he knew was wrong, which he knew was a profound threat to his moral authority, which he knew the FBI was documenting. So she asked, did Martin Luther King cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light? In some ways, yes. In some ways, no. In his public life, yes. In his private life, not so much. He was a larger-than-life example of simul peccator et justice. Those of you who speak Latin, saint and sinner simultaneously. And he remained so until he was killed. So think about that. Think about these questions. Do you think it's possible do you think it's possible to be united to Jesus in baptism and by faith and yet be hounded and stumbled and struggling with very real and profound spiritual darkness, just like she describes Martin Luther King Jr.? Do you believe that it's possible to be forgiven of seriously damaging sin, not only to yourself, but to others, but yet still craving it and even indulging in it at the very same time? In other words, do you believe that the depth of God's grace to you is that great to maintain this tension, to maintain you within this tension? Is the depth of his grace that great toward you, toward us? And the answer is yes, of course, yes. But do you want to meet him like you are? Do you want to meet him like you currently are? 
in the throes of a half-hearted resistance to the sin and the darkness and the evil that you know, or even an indulgence in that for which he suffered and died for you, not just to forgive you, but also to free you from all that. Do you want to meet him like you are now? Because Advent insists, it reminds and insists to us that the man will come around. And eventually he will come around to everyone. But like AD 70, there will be foreshadowings. There will be lesser comings. And it doesn't just happen on a historic, world-changing level. It doesn't just happen to great historic figures like Martin Luther King. It also happens to ordinary people like us in our lives. He comes around. He comes to us in lesser ways as a taste of what's going to eventually fully come. Anytime we read his word, he comes to us. Anytime we gather for worship around his word, around the sacrament, he comes to us. Anytime we meet the poor and the vulnerable and the least of these in this world, according to Matthew 25, he comes to us. And if you are a Christian, you know this experience. And this is it. That at some point, in an undeniable way, probably when you least expect it, maybe when you're just on an ordinary Sunday listening to a sermon, or listening to the word being read, or reading the word yourself, or listening to a song being sung, or kneeling down, and expecting nothing other than to just rotely, in a mechanical way, say a few words. He comes in an undeniable way, in a way that that fully shines momentarily, but demonstrably the light of his presence so brightly in your heart and your mind that you know that he has come to you. And that in that moment, there's a change that you know that you need and that you now know that you want, that you now know it's not just necessary, but it's possible. And that you can't help but be changed. You can't help but wanting to cast off the works of darkness and put on the the armor of light to resist that darkness. Would you pray for that? Would you pray for that, that that would happen during this Advent for you, for us, for us all? Because some of you right now know without question what the works of darkness are that you yourself need to cast away. You know them right now. You're thinking of them right now. The reality is is that you know what they are, but you don't necessarily want to. You do, but you don't. You know that it'd be so good. You know that it'd be so freeing to cast them off, but also be so very difficult because you know you can't do it on your own. You'd have to to tell people about it. You'd have to talk to people about it. You'd have to ask for help, and that would be embarrassing. That would even be humiliating, but you know. And for some of you, this casting off, it is a person. It's a person who's larger than life for you larger than Jesus, larger than anything. And they're leading you in a direction into a place that you do not need to go. For others of you, it's an action. It's a behavior. It's a vice. It's a habit. You need to cast it off. You need to begin to cast it off to form new habits, turning them into virtues. Or for others of you, it's less tangible. It's an attitude or it's a way of thinking. It's an elitism. It's a racism. It's a narcissism. It's a fear. It's a self-centeredness that that turns you towards self-doubt or self-disdain. But it's something It's something for you. It's something for me. It's something for us all. Because Romans 13 is our Advent experience. This is the Christian experience. And that leads to point number three. And that is Advent is opportunity. You have an opportunity right now, this morning, this season, you have an opportunity to take some dark things off and to begin again, to begin anew with God, with others, with your spouse, with your children, at work, with family members, with your body, with others' bodies, with money, with your time, with technology, with what you watch, with what you read, with, with 
how often you worship, with how you pray, with what you pray about, you have an opportunity. If Advent is anything, it is an opportunity. It's like a little Lent in which you have the opportunity to do a honest soul searching inventory when you see what's really in there and what's not. What's in there that shouldn't be and what's not in there that should be, that needs to be, that you were created to be filled with. Because the man is going to come around. And when is he coming? When is he coming? We don't know. That's why now is the time. There are two words, two commands that I want to point out to you, both which Jesus said, and then I'm going to close. Verse 34, Jesus says, watch yourselves. And then verse 36, he says, stay awake. Those are the two words. Watch yourselves is this word in Greek that means to hold to. He says, hold to yourselves. Hold on to yourselves. Hold, hold your tension focused upon yourself right now in this season. In other words, attend to yourself so that you don't lose focus and you don't fall asleep. The two commands are connected. Focus upon yourself and your life and your soul so that you don't fall asleep, so that you can continually take things off because the world is going to continue. Your sin, flesh, the world is going to continue to put things upon you. You've got to take them off so Jesus says you won't be weighed down and just stop because being a Christian in this life, being a person in this life, it's like walking through this life with a backpack on, but unzipped. And everything in this life, everything in this world continues to put things in that backpack, weighing you down more and more and more, oftentimes without you even realizing. And you've got to always continually be taking things off in order that you might continue to move home to God in Christ. Because every step we take in this world is a step in this Romans 13 dynamic toward the day or toward the night. Every step we take, it's toward one or the other. As one author said, every harsh word, every mean act, every vengeful thought is a part of the works of darkness. Every act of forgiveness, every small act of charity, every temptation resisted is a piece of the armor of light, is a piece of the armor of light. So cast them off and put them on. And here's the hope. Here's the motivation even. And that is that Jesus is to be found in Romans 13. He is to be found in the midst of this struggle, in the midst of this contradiction, in the midst of this, this dynamic, because he too had to wake up. Not from a spiritual slumber, the spiritual slumber that we all often know, but from death itself having died under the weight and the consequences of all of God's judgment on our works of darkness. He was weighed down by our sin unto death, but God woke him up and a new day dawned for him at the resurrection. And not just for him, for us, for the whole world, for you, for me. Jesus was cast off into our darkness of sin and death and evil so that we might right now cast off the same darkness, but without tasting death. That is the hope. That is the, the motivation that he is to be found within this Advent experience because the man will come around. So are you ready? Was Martin Luther King Jr. ready? Some ways, yes. Other ways, no. In David Garrow's biography of Martin Luther King, he tells the story of him almost quitting his campaign for justice and equality. He was already a celebrity, a national hero. He was also in the, in the throes of his struggle with his sexual immorality, and he was receiving death threats basically every day. And so one night, just before dawn, 
unable to sleep, sitting at his kitchen table. He thought very seriously about just quitting. And imagine if he had just quitting entirely, giving up his resistance to the public evil of racism and segregation. But then, as King himself tells it, he says, I heard the voice of Jesus saying, still fight on. He promised to never leave me, to never leave me alone. No, never alone. No, never alone. He promised to never leave me, never to leave me alone. Jesus will never leave you. He will never leave you alone. If you are his, he will never leave you alone. And he's coming. His coming is closer now. Salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. So cast off those works of darkness. Cast them off. Attend to yourself even now that you might be ready when he comes. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray, even as we prayed at the very beginning of our service, that you would enable us, that you would give us the grace necessary to cast off the things that we need to throw away and to put on the armor of light in every act, in every word, in every deed. Pray that you would enable us to do that. Even now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.